Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. If you got a tummy ache or you don't feel right. Or if you have a nasty rash Keeping you up at night Don't worry About a thing Don't worry Cause Atticus Health Will make you feel alright Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live from the Karam Karam Swampland on the mighty Eastern Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. My conversation partner tonight is James Cron, an architect, Edith Vale local and senior project lead at Baldasso Cortese. He has over 35 years of experience in Victoria, interstate and abroad across significant major public projects. After earning a certificate in drafting from RMIT and gaining several years of experience, James completed his Bachelor Studies at the Tasmanian State Institute of Technology in Launceston and went on to gain his Master's of Science Advanced Architectural Study from the University College London. As a keen traveller, James continues his COVID bucket list exploring remote Australian destinations with sketchbook and camera in hand. Tonight I'm very keen to hear all about his Archie Travels adventures as well as career highlights working on major public infrastructure projects. If you have any questions for us tonight in the studio, please don't hesitate to send us a text on 0493 213831. And if you miss those numbers, just hit the contact us button via Instagram through at Radio Architecture. James, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, so glad to have you in the studio. We usually bump into each other up and down the beach. Absolutely. That seems to be the, uh, the Burke Street of... Edith Vale, if you don't know anybody, travel down to the beach and you're guaranteed to meet lots of people. Everybody knows your name. It sure is. Or at least your dog. <laughs> your dog's name, yes, definitely. <laughs> the first question I like to ask everyone mm-hmm. is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? That's an interesting story. Um, that was actually how I got into architecture. Um, I used to make model kits as a kid, as most boys my age did. Very detailed drawings, glue part eight or whatever else, but... There was always that disconnect between how houses and buildings came about. And we were, um, I think it was in mid-teens, and a family trip to Montsalvat out at Eltham. And at that time, there was a beautiful bluestone chapel being built. Uh, this was about a metre and a half out of the ground. And in a small um, sort of guest house or something nearby, there was a drawing board with a set of drawings, some floor plans, Floor plans, building, building floor plans, and it all sort of ticked. So I decided initially I wanted to get into, because I'd always loved drawing, to do technical drawing. 
so did an architectural drafting. You know, of course, the end of year 11, I went to uh, RMIT. And it was during my final year there, head of school at that time, Alex New, uh, passed away sadly during the COVID lockdown. Uh, spoke to him about getting into architecture and he became um, my uh, inspiration to support to actually, even though he possibly could have, he wouldn't sort of bend any um, rules to, to get me into the course, but kept continually provided encouragement. And then after I missed out at RMIT a couple of times, it was his suggestions that we wanted to try and state. So I applied to um, TSIT, as it was then, and wrote this fairly flowery uh, sort of essay of why I wanted to go to move to Tasmania. And they came back and said, congratulations, you're in. I said, my God, I'm got into architecture, but I've got to move into state. So I moved um, down there February 1986 and had three years there of uh, study to, to complete my BA. And the rest we can catch on uh, your next question, no doubt, what happened. <laughs> How how much of a confronting change was that in, in the eighties moving into state? <laughs> Nobody moved out of home until our mid twenties. And there I was, um, like twenty one, twenty two, moving into state, uh, in a house and it really hit me the first night when I moved down there and I got home. No dinner on the table. Dirty laundry still on the floor. <laughs> Nothing to cook. So I was sort of eating takeaways, things like that. Spoke to my mother about it and silence. About four days, five days later, my sister came down with her boyfriend with a box of food parcel from Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my other passion, um, cooking. That was how that developed. I had a, it was my sister's uh, cookery book from high school, the Country Women's Association cookery book. So I learned all the basics and then from there what I used to do, that became my way of maintaining sort of a design approach when we were doing late night. Yeah, we'd be up to a lot. We left every project to live in. I don't think any things changed. I'd start cooking just to maintain that inspiration, and suddenly all my student colleagues from around the, they'd all turn up at about one o'clock in the morning. So I'd be feeding everybody while that I was sort of sketching and doing design work, and this became the norm for the next three years. And to this day, I've still maintained um, a passion for cooking. I find it's a very good um, release, not just. Um, to sustain yourself but having dinner parties when you can sort of try and impress people with things you've made. I'll generally uh, watch a TV program, SBS Food, pick up a recipe or something from that and then try and make it. If it's a disaster, that's fine. We'll try again some other time. So passions, architecture, food and sort of entertaining, have people around, I think. Fabulous. And the same with food. If it doesn't work out, at least it's an adventure. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I said, it's all about the journey. <laughs> So you weren't meant to stay in London, though. Sorry? You weren't meant to stay in London. You were just headed there on a gap year. Yeah, well, this is the end of third year, and I'm not sure what the process is now, but generally you've got six months off or thereabouts or 12 months to do your work experience and come back and do uh, some sort of design exercise or report as to what you've been doing. So I decided to move to London. I had a few friends over there for six months, and six years later I came home, so... I just became immersed in the whole lifestyle there with um, not just London itself but the UK, um, family roots dating back, you know, Scottish heritage. And just through uh, Europe itself, all of my um, the architects that I drew inspiration from, all the modernists, um, just travelling around Europe, backpacking or weekends away, going to see buildings and maybe the odd party or 
music festival or something like that. But it it just gave you this opportunity. Plus, with the train travel there, um, I think I drove a car three times in that six years because you could just get everywhere with public transport and a URL pass, staying in hostels and studies, and yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. it was um, just a, a wonderful time to be there. Europe um, was just this was the time when um, the Berlin Wall came down, and Eastern Europe was slowly. Yeah, Cold War was over and you know, Poland and Czechoslovakia and these other countries um, were all um, abandoning these sort of communist governments and it was just this raw sort of enthusiasm. It was like a big loving in Europe. Everybody was just uh, so happy and thrilled that things were changing. Um, it's the height of the punk scene too in London in the 90s. It was. Uh, it was quite different to see the height of the punk scene in Eastern Europe. They were t- <laughs> Totally different kind of punks. You have to remember there was no internet. So they would get things from black market newspapers or things like that. So they were probably about 10 years behind the curveball. They were still under the sex pistols and things like that, even though they'd long demised and said vicious. But they were just wonderfully – they knew nothing about Australia, but because it was so far away, they thought, I'm going to be able to go there. I want to go to Australia. So I was giving masterclasses on trains with people about where they could go and things like that. So – Maybe they've actually moved in here, I don't know. But it was just a very, very um, open, friendly, uh, joyous sort of time to be there. Uh, sort of late 80s, early 90s through Europe. And that was uh, right through a whole of um, Europe. There was a lot of change, a lot of drama, um, but uh, generally a very positive time to be there. What was your favourite bit of architecture you saw across that grand tour? <laughs> oh, this is that story I touched on. I, uh, for my very first trip, I arrived in London on the 8th of December 1988. Uh, stayed with some friends in the Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames. I just love the names of the suburbs over there. So I booked a, and this is when they still had boat trains, things like that. There was no Channel Tunnel then. I got a ferry from Ipswich across to uh, in Belgium, I think it was, and then a series of trains and ferries and things like that. Uh, to Helsinki, and which was interesting in itself. They had these compartments where you could actually lock yourself in and get, get some sleep. It was suddenly very quiet. And I sort of woke up and there was the rest of the train disappearing to this ferry. My carriage had been left behind. And <laughs> I was running across the goods yard being yelled at by you know, station people. Managed to get uh, onto the ferry, uh, make that across to Denmark and then from Denmark to... To Finland, and then uh, sometime in the morning, very early in the morning, got the train from the docks into Helsinki itself. Uh, beautiful station by Saarinen, Swedish architect. One of but, my favourites. Yeah, stunning station. Went into a cafe to buy a coffee, and in my change, I got a 50 kroner note, and on the face of it was uh, the face of Alvar Alta. And I thought, I'm in Nirvana. This is it. I'm in heaven. Uh, snow everywhere. And was trying to find my way with my little map. This is pre-internet days. And I had my little map. And there was a street sweeper. And so I just, in his uniform, sweeping up the streets. And I approached him and said, sorry, do you speak English? And he said, oh, yes, yes. He said, I'm looking for Finlandia concert hall. Alva Alto. Oh, yeah. He gave me the directions. And I thought, I'm in a country where they have an architect on their currency. You have a street sweeper. Who knows, one of the true greats of the modernist era, gave me directions down to Finlandia Concert Hall and 
There it was. I walked down the street, snow everywhere, and there was this stunning white edifice that I'd seen in books, had never seen in person for the first time. And got a little bit moisty eyed. The Finns are incredibly proud of Alvaro Alto and also Sibelius. But just this particular building, um, you talk about appropriateness to sight. It was just gleaming white and just the level of detail. I've always been passionate about details in architecture. This was all bespoke details, everything in the door hardware. The light fittings. If you imagine this sort of lazy S sort of lampshade on these lights along the um, pathways leading up to the building. It served two purposes. One, it reflected the light back down onto the path. And two, because of the amount of snow, any snow that settled on top of the lampshade, the light show, the heat would melt it and it would just slide off the back. And just so as you're walking down, you're just hearing this gentle thud, thud, thud. <laughs> but these very robust um, timber door and window details, again, so no snow would actually gather on the ledge. It would actually just slide off. Uh, inside, it was just breathtaking, just stunning birch timbers, beautiful timbers details um, and acoustic details that um, had been incorporated. It was just uh, incredible use of timber. It was one thing you know, during my studies that we were encouraged was honest use of timber, of, of materials. If you're using timber, why cover it up with paint and things like that to express it? And this, you'd have to say, uh, was just an incredibly expressive building and uh, very appropriate for the place in this stunning park. So I saw it in winter and then came back later, and a couple of years later and saw it in summer, which is equally as brilliant. It really is. If I'm not mistaken, it was Alvaro Alto who said that the door handle is the handshake with the building. Mm, very much so. This is your introduction. It's sort of like you turn the handle. But most of the door handles here, they were more uh, very large, robust, solid timber doors, a lot of pull handles, but not like something you'd pick up out of a, out a catalogue. These were big, robust steel uh, handles, a lot of stainless steel. The buildings, I think, by today's standard would probably cost you a fortune. But it was the sort of thing you'd look at, oh, my God, I'd love to have just, you know, been on the detailing team for that or worked on this project. It's craftsman's, craftsmanship. Mm. Really, yes, absolutely. That's core and a building that the whole city is so proud of. Pretty much so. It's, it's probably similar in some respects to our opera house. People may not have been to a function there, but they know the building and it's a familiar face. It's something that they can look at and admire without actually um, participating in any events at that uh, structure. But, uh, yeah, it was certainly one of my favourites. You'd probably say the same for the NGV in Melbourne as well. Yes. Roy Ground's masterpiece. Very much so. I remember when uh, Meteor 3 were working on um, the renovations and they had an Italian architect who was involved with the master plan and one of the first things he wanted to do was to take out the water wall. There was nearly riots in the street. Rightly so. To, if, to this day, you still see grown adults looking around and walking up and then putting their hands up. I mean, I do it, put their hands up against the glass. Is it really water? And that's been a endearing feature of that structure for some time. Even the moats outside uh, that I, as a young boy, actually swam in several times. What about that time? What about in Europe? I'm sure not everything was uh, so serendipitous as to get such directions straight through to Alvaro Alto. Were there any um, misadventures in your archie travels or more difficult moments? Oh, very to get much to the so. Architecture? Very much so. Um, uh, I went um, backpacking for about three months and travels uh, made it by train all the way up to Narwick. 
in uh, Norway and then from there I had to hitchhike where I'd never hitchhiked before. And when you're talking about remote locations, this was a narrow strip of bitumen just winding up into the hills. You're surrounded by reindeer and not much else. And I managed to get a lift with um, a Dutch chap. He was interested in architecture. He was travelling up to North Cape right at the very top and was telling me about this stunning uh, amphitheatre where you could actually see the midnight sun. And by midnight sun, it doesn't actually go down. It's a 24-hour daylight for a period of time. And we got up there and, and went made our way to um, this fairly nondescript building. You go down this sort of cabin into, and into this vast auditorium underground. Is this in the Arctic Circle already? Yes. And stunning views. You could see the ice flows and, and whatever else. And then um, stayed there uh, overnight. He lent me his tent and a photo of him of uh, me putting up the tent at 2am in the morning surrounded by reindeer. It was broad daylight. Did not sleep very well that night. We went our separate ways. He was going off somewhere else. And then the trip back on my own was I got picked up by a couple of rev heads, um, Norwegians I think they were, and they were driving but the driver kept turning around talking to me, telling me about what I could see, you know, in Tromso and all these other places. Mate, can you please watch the road? Uh, eventually we made our way to uh, a bus stop um, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, this was about one o'clock in the morning. The bus wasn't coming till about nine and it was a ba- an abandoned old fishing shed. So I thought I'd doss down there but I was starving and they had all these racks of dried herring. So I had a 20 kroner note and they were pegged so I took one of the fish and pegged this 20 kroner note up there so I'd have something to eat. So I slept on the floor of this place, being some uh, midges... Uh, mosquitoes and God knows every little flying, crawling insect. Woke up in the morning, my skin was just red raw. Eventually the bus came at about 8 o'clock. The bus driver took one look at me, was not going to let me on the bus. He thought I had dengue fever or something like that. Managed to get on the bus. Uh, had to go to a doctor's when I got down there. He couldn't speak English but he could take one, take one look at me. So I got this little tiny jar of ointment that I had to use over my arms and face and everything else. And then eventually made it back to... Um, Bergen, I think it was, and then continued on with my travels for the next three months. So that was the start of my um, looking at buildings there. Was uh, the building worth it the, was actually. The, it was, the bites? It was a very nondescript sort of entry structure. But just imagine this vast interior auditorium in, that's been carved out of rock. Wow. So it's just sort of... Yeah, you know, there's water sort of dribbling down the walls. It's all mossy. There's little ferns growing in there. And in front of you is this vast, uh, quite large um, glass, series of glass panels with a balcony. You could walk out there and just look out over the distance and see the ice flows just, you know, off towards the, um, um, the Antarctica. Didn't see any polar bears, but certainly it was just in- awe-inspiring to see that. So this was during July, August. Um, so the sun would dip down close to the horizon and start rising again. So I think they all go slightly mad up there over the certain times of the year. Oh, yeah, the polar summers mm. are very difficult. Yes, and then in winter it's obviously pitch black, as I found when I went to um, to Helsinki that first time. Um, sun barely came because it was a bit further south, but you'd get a few hours of daylight, so like a twilight, then sun would go down again. So it's a different sort of lifestyle, very harsh. So the buildings you see, um, they actually use a lot of timber, which I thought would be surprising with the amount of moisture and snow and so forth, but very steeply pitched roofs to obviously uh, address that problem. 
um, but incredibly warm inside. You would go and I was invited into um, met young couple on train and got invited to their parents' house to have a meal. Just out of the blue, they're so friendly, and the houses were just incredibly warm, just from a wood-fired stove. Uh, no ducted heating or whatever, but just incredibly warm homes. They weren't massive though, were they? No, no, very compact. Um, they weren't built like uh, a sort of different sort of attitude towards the home. They would have friends over, but only very close, immediate friends, very sociable people, but predominantly in summer. So they'd have large gardens, so they'd generally have functions in their back gardens and so forth like that or a dining room where everybody would be packed in, but they weren't built at that sort of larger scale like you find that we have our homes here. Probably about the half the size of the typical McMansion Very much now. so. Very much <laughs> That's why you can heat it with one wood stove. You can, but it's just the way they were designed, mm. the uh, air circulation. So in summer you'd open a window or two like that and it would allow sort of fresh air to circulate through, warm air to rise in sort of heat upstairs spaces, just for very uh, creative use of the space. Less is more than not trying to heat um, five-bedroom homes like we do where you could have ducted heating or split systems. It was very, very simple architecture. Many, many good lessons there, no doubt. Very creative lessons. Um, very good use of timber, uh, sustainable timber, you know, sort of Nordic pine and so forth. Um, very, like the kitchens, very simple layouts. It's just a very good basic sort of home that you think, yeah, I could be very comfortable in this sort of place. I don't need a big house. Mm. Don't need all that excess. So I want to pivot to then you came back to Australia after your three months backpacking and it was time to look for work. Yes. How, how was that search at the time? Well, actually, I can take it back further when I first started out as an architectural draftsman. Um, Fresh out of RMIT, um, there were jobs. This is again pre-internet. It was it was everything was via um, the job section in the Age on Thursdays, I think it was, and was not having much luck. So Alex knew the head of school said, Look, "Why don't you just try going through the yellow pages? Do you remember those the yellow pages?" I do, I do. It's A still part Z. of my vintage. Um, A to Z in architects, and I thought there's so many. Um, I'll start at postcode three thousand in the city and work my way out. So these were large-scale practices and no, we're not looking. They were so old school. Have you done any military service? Have you done this? They wanted military service. <laughs> they wanted people who had served in the military. Yeah, they're very old school. Yeah, one company I did actually. Why? Work I have no idea. It was part of that um, attitude. Well, if you've done military service, you're obviously disciplined and you've got a certain work ethic. Or so something. you'll be a better slave? I don't know. Oh, it's heavens. Strange. That's really wild. But you're talking about um, there were a number of – there was uh, one office I ended up working at, um, the uh, Bucken, Laird and Borden, Sir John Bucken. So they had sirs. There were a lot of people who have been knighted for services to architecture. But anyway, I was sort of working my way out from – the CBD, and got to East Melbourne and there was this nondescript firm, um, Romberg and Boyd. I'd never heard of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so I knocked on the little beautiful home in East Melbourne and this lovely elderly gentleman opened the door and dressed himself as uh, Frederick Romberg. So I went in and a stunning home just filled with modern masters, Arthur Boyd paintings and sculptures, you know, from the grand... Yeah, from that modernist era. And he said, look, unfortunately I'm nearly retired, but he went through my folio and he's telling me, you know, wonderful drawings and details. I'm sure you'll have no problems getting a job. 
I met Kappa, we had a long chat about architecture and I went back to RMIT on the Monday and spoke to Alex and he just sort of spluttered over his coffee. He said, you knocked on the door of Frederick Romberg. And he, I said, well, is And he pulled out a book. It was Grounds, Romberg and Boyd and all these sort of modern architecture and so forth. And um, I suppose it was a bit like turning up to Corb's office and saying, can I have a job, please, sort of thing. But I kept persevering and eventually I did manage to get some work and then it was um, later that I um, decided that I wanted to get into architecture. What was Frederick Romberg like in the, in the time we spoke to you? That's quite a high compliment. Just very, very elegant gentleman, uh, very refined, um, very down to earth, was not uh, pretentious, did not sort of talk down to me at any time. There was drawings on the wall. He had a plan chest in his um, room and he was showing me some of the drawings. Nothing clicked. It was various buildings that he'd worked on with um, Robin Boyd and uh, Roy Grounds um, that I looked at them and thought, oh, I know that building. It, it just didn't click that um, it was only later that uh, when I became more immersed in architecture that I realised the sort of legacy that he, Roy Grounds and Robin Boyd had left. Uh, particularly in the city, he'd done quite a body of work over time. But the way he was talking about it, it wasn't, I'm so good, look at me sort of thing. It was more talking about the technical drawing side of things. Beautiful hand-rendered perspectives. None of this sort of Revit 3D. These were all from scratch on a drawing board. Uh, Some of them were freehand and just beautifully rendered, just simple black and white drawings. The innocence of being a student. This is I warned listeners on the show for our student special conversation yeah. a couple of months ago now. I said, use your cuteness factor. Use this naivety, the opportunity you get to wander into places and ask people things. And here's a most amazing story that's an exemplar of that. Well, I could t- <laughs> as part of my travels when I was overseas, um, I came home from work one night. And it was like something out of one of these... Um, science fiction movies, the television had the news on, suddenly went blank. We interrupt this program with an important political announcement. So I'm flicking around, it was the same on every channel. And then suddenly this camera went to Berlin and there were these joyous scenes where they'd announced that the Berlin Wall was going to be reopened, uh, end of hostilities and people just going ballistic. You know, East Berlin people with their smoky, crappy old scoters and Trabants sort of chugging into West Berlin and they're giving them fruit and things like that. And it was um, – and I thought, I've got to get over there. So the next morning I went down and uh, to a ticket place for airline tickets. They were called Bucket Shops, I think. I picked up what I was told was the last seat on a flight into Berlin uh, for Christmas Eve. Uh, flew in – very late on Christmas Eve, thought I'm just going to waltz through Brandenburg Gate. I got down there and um, was told by two British infantrymen landing on a Land Rover, oh, no, no, you'll have to still have to go through Checkpoint Charlie. So I went through Checkpoint Charlie and there was uh, these three young soldiers and they sort of, you sort of shuffle crabways through and they stamp your passport. They were a bit sort of uh, fierce and stern, but they had this little Christmas tree they were trying to make stand up and I had this little claspy sort of koala thing that when you squeeze oh. the legs open, I pass that through and their faces just lit up and they put this little koala on this Christmas tree. The koala clip. So um, checked into my hotel and I was uh, the next day, just uh, Christmas Day, had lunch in the restaurant, then went for a wander around Berlin. Still stunning. I mean, this is a city that was sort of left in time, not forgotten. West Berlin was all Mercedes and McDonald's, things and like Coca-Cola, that. And Coca-Cola, yeah. Mm, East Berlin was still stuck in a time warp. 
beautiful, stunning architecture. And there was one particular building. The fact that it was covered with radio towers and antennas should have been a dead giveaway. The Stasi headquarters. Yes. <laughs> I've been taking, there. It's a good museum. I took it. Well, it was still actively operating at this time. And I started taking some photos and I heard somebody yelling out in German. I turned to my left and looked up and there was this soldier with a rifle pointing at me. I just stood there and thought, oh, fuck. He came charging down saying something in German. I did not know what he was saying. And I sort of put my hands up. And then um, he said, Deutsch. I said, no, no, I'm English, I'm Australian. I pulled out my passport and he said, oh, you must not take a photo of this building. I'd only just put, again, showing my age, 35 millimeter camera, pulled the film out, just ripped it out uh, to expose it. Um, and then she was saying, pleading nobody, oh, I didn't know. Uh, so he, he showed me on a map several buildings in East Berlin where verboten, you must not take photographs. So we then walked up and I said, oh, you've got very good English. And so we became best friends after that. And then he escorted me and pointing out different buildings I could uh, see. But that's probably the most life-threatening experience I've had in my architectural career. I certainly don't want to uh, repeat that again. But that was uh, fun times. And it was, um, as I said, it was a very... Totally different time frame. I mean, a lot of Germans now lament the fact that there is you know, one Germany. They did prefer the um, the two separate countries. But East Berlin was just absolutely stunning, like a living museum. Beautiful, beautiful architecture that it had not been touched. Uh, whereas West Berlin, there's a lot of wholesale changes. So I don't know what it's like now. It would be interesting to go back and actually see with all the various um, intersections. You know, with the wall gone, um, you've actually got that... Um, and that New Year's Eve there, I'll just remember that. Um, it was the soberest New Year's Eve I've ever had. It was uh, Berlin, the Brandenburg Gate, whereas people had been manning machine gun towers and carrying guns. All the guards were standing on top of the wall with magnums of champagne. And, they, and there was about 250,000 people on both sides, only half a million people. On, and they weren't allowing anybody from the west into the east unless they got a New Year's Eve kiss. <laughs> Sort of lined up, letting people through the walls, eh? pecker on the cheek, and sort of thing. It's a very, very um, joyous time there. Eh? Mm. How happy people were to finally taste freedom at the collapse of the murderous it ideology. It was. It was, um, as I was saying before, people who knew nothing about Australia suddenly realised that if they had the money or could, they could go there if they wanted to. And it was only the fact that when they looked at a map of the world, Australia was. 12,000 miles away, middle of, you know, right down the bottom of the um, Pacific Ocean, that they thought, yeah, I want to go there because I can. And you would sort of spend hours on you know, train trips and things like that. I was travelling down to Czechoslovakia and places, um, meeting people uh, that just wanted to know about Australia. And that was, you know, young university students. Hopefully they got down here. I don't know. Speaking of trains, mm. I, I want to pivot again, but yep. this has really quite prompted me that you've worked on the Metro Tunnel project. I have, yes. I had about uh, nearly two years. Um, I've worked on a lot of um, large infrastructure projects, Crown Casino, various hospitals and town centres, things like that, but the Metro Tunnel was just Did you get to go else. underground? That, yes. Um, generally with most site work, um, I have my white card training. In this case the white card would get me into the compound, but that not below ground. You'd have to have an escort. Because you're below ground, it's almost like a mining qualification and then the tunnel's a separate exercise. So 
one of my first side visits, I was working on the new Anzac station up near Domain and large Oculus, as we called it, which has been completed at the tram stop. We went down via some a lift to one level and then stairs down and, I don't know, 30 metres or something below ground down to the platform level. And uh, if you imagine this cavern, dark and damp and some with lights and noise, 250 metres long, about 50 metres wide and about eight, 10 metres high or something. That was two level, uh, That was the two levels there, the concourse level and the platform level. At either end were these two long uh, concrete cylinders, one, getting, one set heading back to South Yarra and the others off towards the rest of the station. We weren't allowed to walk um, into the tunnel, but I did get a photo of myself standing in one of the portals. And to see this infrastructure in place that at one time they were looking to dig up or cut a big trench down Swanson Street and then do a cut and cover. That didn't eventuate, so they got in these two tunnel borers. And what most people wouldn't realise is as you're walking along Swanson Street, now there are these two large tunnels sitting below them that run from... Uh, Eastern Portal at uh, South Yarra, just beyond South Yarra Station, and then they exit just near North Melbourne there Station. There was a competition to name those machines, I think. There was. Um, I don't remember what the names are. I'm still thinking of that competition they had for a new boat in the UK that came out as Boaty McBoatface or something. So I don't know what they called it. I think one was called Florence or something. Florence well, of the machine. It could be. I think probably somebody from Triple J or something. I don't know, but um, they were um, uh, when they completed the tunnels and lined them. You could not pick a fault. Just beautiful, stunning forms. The architecture of the the stations was much the same. It's a very much a different sort of st- uh, station infrastructure that people are used to. Glass screens with sliding doors that will align with um, the doors of the carriage. So I think their motto is more trains more often. So if you miss a train, there'll be another one in about four minutes. So it's a game changer in terms of moving people. And safety as yes, well. Yes, really. safety um, because, uh, you know, if you look at the, the underground, sometimes you get the occasional um, person who decides to go for a wander through the <laughs> the city loop. This won't, that won't be an issue with these. There'll be completely, uh, there's sensors, there's all sorts of safety controls. It's very much state-of-the-art sort of safety and infrastructure there. So that was um, quite an experience working on those and then moved on to level crossing removal. So I've been below ground and then above ground. So uh, that was another interesting exercise. Which were some of the stations that you've been involved with? The only two that I was involved with in my time uh, were uh, Croydon Station and um, East Ringwood. East Ringwood will go into a trench. Croydon was actually, as a flow into uh, placemaking and so forth, most people probably know Croydon, uh, like a lot of suburbs. The train line effectively cuts the town in two halves. You've got to negotiate around the station to get from one side to the other. We have the exact same problem through the Long Beach. Mm. So what will happen is once that station's elevated, effectively you can just walk through, just flow through from... So the town then becomes effectively a centralised zone, greater interconnectivity. Um, and if you look at Carrum, Carrum was very much similar to Parkdale and um, Aspendale. In fact, all the stations on the Frankston line. If you imagine that that trench could have been 100 feet deep or something like that because you had to negotiate around the level crossings and everything else. Once you drop them or lift them, you're suddenly creating uh, more transient movement between towns. So 
effectively what was east of the train line is now like where I live in Edith Vale. Uh, I'm only now about 10 minute walk from the beach whereas before it would have been negotiating level crossings and uh, and so forth uh, so it, it, it I know there's a lot of angst with a lot of local people but it, it is a game changer in terms of how people move around if you look at Carum you've got undercover parking now summertime leave your car in the shade greater access to the shops on either side of the train line and greater access to the beach so they um Certainly uh, projects that will change the way we move. I mean, we're now, I think, larger than Sydney in terms of a population base and we're still growing. Uh, growth corridor down in um, southeast Melbourne, it just gives an opportunity for people to move around the city far more readily. With, without, I know it's very, um, it's very contentious, still continues to be very contentious because I think particularly people in Chelsea mm. are lamenting the fact that they didn't go up mm. and that the sky rail option wasn't, chosen mm. particularly for those shops. How, how do you feel about the Edith Vale solution? The Edith Vale solution actually works in respect of um, from where I am, I walk up the end of my street, I can turn to the left, walk down to uh, – there's a number of pedestrian crossings over the train line with safety brigades. So for, as a pedestrian movement, I can get across to the beach or I can walk up to Chelsea quite readily or walk up to uh, Aspendale. Um some people don't like it in terms of, um, I think if you look at uh, Parkdale, there's a lot of pushback and angst there. But it will be interesting to see how that is embraced or or other because at the moment you've effectively got two Parkdales. You've got the shopping strip on one side, then there's another shop and other businesses on the other side. This will allow greater connectivity. It's the same with Aspendale. It's also yeah. split in that, in that way. Yeah, it's... Um, you change – a lot of people have a uh, – that in these areas have lived here for most of their lives. They like certain things that are familiar to them. They don't readily embrace change. You can understand that. We don't like a lot of change. You move to an area and you like it because you have your neighbours there and your routines. But as a growing city, the Frankston line, even the Sandringham line, uh, it was a nightmare moving down here by, you know, by car, um, just – uh, boom gates and things closing, closing all the time. It does give greater movement to the train. Well, it didn't obviously impact on the trains, but certainly people moving around in cars and other forms of public transport and bikes uh, gives them uh, greater access to get from one side to the other without um, any undue problems. Excellent. I mean, there's a lot of exciting um, projects coming up. There is. In a, in a local area and something that's caught the attention of the active local community groups just this week is the McGlashan Everest. Circling back to modernism, the McGlashan Everest house, the Reed House, is on the market in Aspendale. Oh. 4.6 million, if any listeners are in the market, is the asking price in the, in the range, but it's one of the most stunning ones where the Reeds used to holiday. There's a number of houses. Um, I actually saw on the ABC was um – so about uh, Merrick, I can't think of his name. Uh, part of the Merrick and Rosso duo, he focused on uh, modernist architecture and there were several properties down on the peninsula that um, had been designed and built by various architects as holiday homes that have now been swallowed up. I think one of them, by modernist, it was very much, it was almost like a Miro painting. It was very sort of multicoloured, beautiful modernist home. I think RMIT actually purchased the house 
to preserve it. Uh, and it's, I think when you see examples of that era, um, they should be preserved. I mean, the Capitol Theatre should have been bulldozed you know, decades ago, but it was actually protected and preserved. They took the ticket be. box. There was a beautiful ticket box that's been demolished. It's really upsetting actually There was, the but the, the preserved, like the interior and the bulk of the building is still there. And if you go around actually down the laneway from the back, it still has that sort of art deco. Capital Arcade. Yes, which uh, was actually the, the, the entrance from the theatre. It was just a, a theatre there. Um, the Capital Theatre has been gorgeously restored by Six Degrees, $60 yes. million dollar refurbishment mm. and all new lighting and all new sound. And it's my favourite building in Melbourne, so I'm very glad you mentioned it because any opportunity to talk about it. But listeners do see if you can get a ticket. Often free, plenty of free events in the Capital Theatre. If you can get along to something or even a film screening or a talk mm. or a show, it's an incredible building. They still have um, open... Melbourne Open House, yes. Yes, Yes, where you can actually go in there. Um, Talking about theatres, it takes me back. My father was involved with the public service and one of the areas he worked in was a special projects division where various buildings would be put forward for the government to assess as to whether they should be protected and preserved. And one that came through was the grand old dame, the Regent Theatre. I think it was about 12 or 13, so a fairly long time ago, kiddies. Uh, pre-restoration, it was earmarked for demolition. It had been submitted to uh, state government for preservation and at that time they were building the state theatre with the um, spire and everything else. They weren't in a position to purchase the site and retain it for public use but they did slap a preservation order on it, stop it being demolished. And I remember one uh, Labor Day weekend, or Moomba, as we remember that, we were actually allowed in there, my... um, Father, mother, uh, brothers and sisters, sister. And we went inside. This is pre-restoration. So imagine it's just covered in grime. But you could actually see all the stunning detail hiding below, behind that grime. They'd had a fire in there, but the fire curtain had dropped and managed to protect the rest of the theatre. So we went in there. Most of the seating had gone. Um, chandeliers were all hanging askew. It was like something out of a Hammer House of Horror sort of thing. You know, that couldn't the have opera. been safe to go there. That couldn't have been safe. But they'd taken down a lot of the bits that were falling, but all the carpets and everything was all still intact and it was just an absolutely stunning piece of architecture and uh, that sort of over-the-top design for a lot of grand theatres. So to see it now fully restored is just stunning. So I know there's a, there are a number of theatres on the forum. They're looking to do a restoration on that. Yes, it really needs some love. And that's two. That was two cinemas, That, but it was originally just one theatre. So I think the Mariner Group are looking to actually do a full resto there, which would be absolutely stunning, just to give Melbourne that sort of additional sort of theatrical um, sort of, you know, for productions from overseas, even local productions. Yeah, it was very much a part of Melbourne's culture growing up. There, there was theatres through every suburb, even Burke Street. I know just up the road from your office, there's probably at least four former theatres. Yes, that uh, have now found new uses. Even the Metro, um, which was the Metro nightclub when I was growing up, they re- at least retained the facade and a few other bits. So it still maintains that sort of theatre. That was Melbourne's West End uh, with the theatre region in there. You also worked on Crown Casino. I did. For 
<laughs> for better or worse, it's not necessarily a good building, but it is a very interesting architecturally. It's an interesting project because yep. it, South Bank has mm. very sludgy soils. Yes. And it's an enormous building because of the amount of tenants and operators and the function it serves. Mm. And I love all these stories about architecture and you've been sharing a lot of them tonight actually in a lot of these moments. And when you go to architecture school, you also pick up all these stories about the architecture of the city in these moments and mm. half of them are rumours and you never know if it's true. So can you clear something up for me? Sure. Is there a morgue in Crown Casino? Not that I was aware of. Um Generally, if there's any, like even with a structure like that, if there was any sort of fatalities, they're that close to the Alfred, they would be able to get them out of there fairly quickly. I, on the documents that I <laughs> viewed, I was predominantly involved in the gaming hall, uh, all the ceilings and some of the tenancies, food tenancies, but we had a very, um, like an oversight of the whole structure. Uh, main podium level was the gaming and the, the food port spaces and above that was the hotel. If somebody had <laughs> you know, met their demise at the gaming tables, I dare say that there'd been ambulance calls. So I, I dare say it's an urban myth. An urban myth. I, I heard. But all let's sorts just of leave it out there that I'm not confirming yes or no. <laughs> Trap doors. Apparently, there secret panel doors on the gaming floor no, to carry no. carry um, patrons away. No. To avoid not that I was aware of. There were um, back of house doors, discreet ones for. If there were cleanups, and by cleanups I mean people that were overly refreshed or something like that, that caused some issues, um, because the nature of that building is twenty four seven. They've got to keep the cash registers turning over. When it first was first completed and we were sort of taken through, it was actually quite. Uh, I mean, the, the carpets. It was a young interior designer. It was her first project out of university, and she ended up winning a design award for the carpet design. Um, the all the materials it was no expense bed it was all state of the art i worked on all the ceiling details where we had lighting but we also had uh various um cornices and things like that that had fire rating issues at that time beauty and the beast was uh showing at um the regent theater they had the stage set designer come down and I had to sit down with him and work out details. And we had to come up with a fire rate of detail where we had these what looked like very old, world robust uh, cornice details suspended from the ceiling that were going to be flammable. So working with another company, we came up with a detail of using styrofoam and then like a fiberglass sort of slurry to cover over that and then a plaster glass. And that was all finished and then painted in this sort of sort of sepia sort of colour to make it look all sort of old-worldly. Weight a ton. We had f- everything was full-scale uh, mock-ups. This thing was built. Uh, I got in trouble because the sample cost a fortune, but uh, Lloyd Williams, he was quite happy with it because the end result was you have these um, quite interesting sort of edifices hanging from the ceiling within the structure that were fully fire-rated that had never been done before and it all came about as a result of the sort of castle and um, balustrade details that they used at uh, Beauty of the Beast that we incorporated separate similar technology at the casino. But it was all for the start of that was first um, sort of billion-dollar building, I think, in Melbourne. Massive structure, I think about 1.6K from door to door. Um, and you could get lost in there. I went to site a couple of times with the project architect. And before certain familiar things that you're working on were in place, it was just this vast cavern. It slowly took form. And when it first opened, it was just absolutely sort of stunning. 
um, bit tired now. Probably needs a bit of a refresh, but still, I think um, in terms of livening up South Bank, um, have to remember South Bank at that time was factories. It was the Allen Sweet Factory, Swamp Land. There was nothing there. Nobody went to South Bank. We we turned our back on the river. Then we learnt to love the river and actually embrace it. So now you see South Bank, you see North Bank. We've got these entertainment and food precincts. We've got public space, good places public to space. walk. Public space. People run. can row. They can. I mean, technically, if you had a boat upriver, you could bring your boat into town, tie it up for the day down at Docklands and walk to work. Uh, it's good to see that the river's being embraced. It's something that you see in European cities, even in the US, but we never really embrace the Yarra. Maybe we'll move towards the swimmable Yarra that there's such so much hope for and movements towards. Yeah, I have swum in it when I was younger. I don't know if I'd do it now. Oh, goodness. <laughs> It's they don't call it the upside down river for nothing. In fact, it's the only river I'm aware of that they don't actually have a dam. We don't actually have any drinking water that comes from the era that I'm aware of. So it, that's why it tends to be sort of flowing. There's never it's never been dammed to control the flow. It's always continually flowing at either the sort of high levels. I vaguely remember uh, flooding in South Yarra and Elizabeth Street from the uh, Yarra when I was younger, but they did uh, make some changes um, to the the way it flows with the turning basin and so forth to actually keep the river from flooding. There were many ancient creeks. Yes. And this is well, Elizabeth what, Street. Exactly, the Elizabeth Street Creek. It, yes. When it floods, it turns to a waterfall. Which is still there, but it's in a pipe. And I believe there was a proposal council was looking at to reopen the river and expose it. But I thought, that'd be brilliant. Imagine having a river flying through the centre of the town. Restoring the ancient waterways. Mm. The, the ancient landscapes. They have done that in some cities overseas to just sort of green up spaces, former roadways, um, aerial sort of uh, rail infrastructure in New York and places like that, uh, you know, bringing in sort of urban green spaces. That could be something to look at, but the only problem is we've got so many trams. It's it's what you do with the tram service down Elizabeth Street, whether you terminate it at, say, Burke Street and just have the rest of that as a sort of open river and green I'd, space. I'd love that. I'd love yeah, it to be a piazza. Mm. It's only 200 metres between Flinders Street and Burke Street. Yeah. So it's a perfectly walkable distance. They've changed the approach with a lot of the tram stops, removing some of the intermediate ones. People sort of move differently now. Uh, maybe that might be a possibility. It might be a project for you in the future. There's an idea <laughs> for anyone listening. I want to ask about this COVID bucket list and some. Yes. Of, what's your favourite destination that you've been to across well, Australia? Like if someone's thinking of getting into Archie travel, mm-hmm. where would you send them? Well, I first got into this, this was during COVID lockdown. You know, I was like, if I ever get out of here. And I started making up a list. It was mainly remote locations because of um, just the extremes that I wanted to see um, – well, buildings, but also just the people. It's not just about the buildings in their own right are just buildings. Once you bring people in and you embody something within them, then they're, they're far more interesting. So I started making up a list. Uh, Broken Hill was on the list, which an amazing city in the middle of nowhere uh, built off mining wealth. Um, but then you travel out to Silverton and you meet these very eccentric artists and people like uh, Pro Heart was out there at one point. Uh, stunning buildings, you know, corrugated iron and different sort of materials that they used. They were very uh, resilient people. There was quite significant civic architecture, but the some a lot of the housing from these fairly eccentric artistic types, it was just quite interesting to see how they'd effectively put together ramshackle structures, but in this beautifully composed way. Um, so it's Broken Hill, Kuba Pedi, 
a lot of people living underground. Which is <laughs> a continuing theme I'm noticing. Yes. Um, it's it just well, when I was in Cooper Pity, it was 50 degrees. Water restrictions, there's no swimming pool. You're on time limits on your showers. So being underground was actually the way that a lot of people are found to um, adapt to the heat. Uh, free air conditioning, you're sort of under the ground, it's sort of a lot cooler. Um, it's pretty m- remarkable to stay in those underground hotels if anyone gets a chance to travel to Kubapedi. It's quite um, it's confronting like, because it's – I don't really suffer from claustrophobia, but that first time when you're sort of down there, you're sort of looking around thinking, how do I get out of here if the, pa- if the power goes out? Because you need the light to see where you're going. So I slept with a torch under my pillow, a bit like you own. The old gangsters with a gun under the pillow. If you'd hear any noises, I'd grab the torch. What was that? No, it's all right. It's good. Um, it's like Tatooine. <laughs> it is. Very much so. Uh, Luke Star Skywalker Wars. stepping up on a street drink after drinking my blue milk or whatever he was drinking in that opening scene. So, Cooper Petey, uh, Broom, uh, Darwin, Catherine, Perth, Rotnest. Um, I'm not sure what's next on the list. I have to double check. But... They were equally interesting. Broome was probably the one that really sort of shocked me. I mean, it's basically a beach, cable beach, and there's not much else. But the architecture or the buildings up there, very robust. They had to be because of the, um, uh, the cyclones and the storms, but also the, the, the big wets. So you had buildings where they've tried to make them as robust as possible, but as homely as possible. So again, the great Aussie vernacular of uh, corrugated iron. But quite robust steel frames up on post to make sure that they get ventilation underneath. Um, but homes that uh, had been built to actually adapt to the relevant conditions, you know, quite wide ease for shade and so forth. And talking to some of the locals, they just um, didn't have a great understanding of architecture, but they knew what they needed to actually um, have a, um, a living environment that was. Um, amenable to the conditions. You know, you're talking humidity of 100% temperatures in the mid-40s or even hotter and then in the wet season to rent, you know, rain just coming in, just solid sheets of rain. Many, and, many lessons on how to adapt to changing climate mm, as well if we look yes. towards more extreme areas. But it's also the materials. They're becoming harder to get. Um, how things are, like I know that there was um, green power uh, powering a foundry to produce some steel so they believe that they can maintain certain levels of material but you still have to extract it out of the ground. So it's whether we um, continue to extract or we reuse materials. I'll give you an example. My house that I lived up in, the Dandenongs, uh, 60% of that house had a previous life in Caulfield. It was actually his parents' home. That after they passed away, he took all the windows, uh, the bulk of the floorboards, all the doors, um, and a whole lot of other materials that went into the, the new home meant that all my windows when I was getting fly screens made up for them, not one of them was the same. They're all different sizes. But you had this beautiful Baltic pine. So um, the roof iron was uh, was new, but a lot of the main timbers, the structural timbers, were all reused from his parents' house. Um, the uh, bench tops in the kitchen were actually from North Bank from the, when they were replacing the decking there. Uh, he was driving past. They were going to burn it all. He got a trailer. He took it home. Beautiful red gum slabs that were all machined down to make bench tops in his kitchen. Uh, all of the 
doors to the joinery units in the kitchen were all old uh, fence palings. Oh, beautiful. So you, it can be done. You can actually recycle to minimise um, extracting materials out of the ground. It's really – as it was a house just up the road from me recently, um, demolished to make way for a new home, and I was just asking the demolition guy, I said, oh, is any of that being recycled? And he said, yeah, in the tip. All going to landfill. Beautiful. The house itself fairly nondescript, but lovely four-panel doors, gone. Um, all the timber framing, structural members, gone. The stub work, stud framing, gone. The windows, gone. All just ripped down, landfill. Construction waste is an enormous contributor to landfill. It is. I can't, I can't remember the statistic now, but it's a massive number. It's not yeah. good. But this is something before in terms of um, honesty and architecture. Do we? You know, there's um, uh, another series of townhouses going just up the road from me. Lost count of the number of homes there. All this timber stud framing. Now that's that's wonderful if it comes from radiated pine. You can grow that fairly quickly. But if you if you're going to use timber, why not use that as an expressed you know, material? Paints that are painting things. Um, Steel stud frames, obviously a bit more materiality to come out of the ground. I think it's just finding ways in which we can reuse, recycle and reuse or put homes underground like they do in Coverfordy. I'm not ready to live <laughs> underground yet, James. Nobody wants to be a hobbit. Not yet. <laughs> no. Not yet at least. Maybe maybe in 50 years we'll yes. see what's going on with the climate at that yes, point. Yes, we might all have to be yeah. underground yeah. Stay, stay above, stay in the sunshine, stay on the beach. Absolutely. Like the, the question I like to ask my guests at the yes. end often is, what gives you hope? Hope. <clears throat> I was thinking about with my, talking with my daughter, I felt almost that we've, you still look at various conflicts. I'm not going to get political, but we don't seem to have evolved too much. We still have a lot of conflicts. We don't seem to be able to resolve things. But then you'll see... Uh, Opportunities where there'll be these stories in the background. As um, I was listening today on the radio, there was this chap there, you know, asking people to ring in and talk about jobs that you love. And he has this program called Disco Ability. It's basically it's a daytime dance thing where he gets people with disabilities to come down, forget their problems, and just go crazy on the dance floor, whether you're in a wheelchair or a walking frame. And then you hear other stories of people doing things in the background. There was an um, Australian story, this chap who'd fallen on hard times. He'd dropped out. He'd disappeared into a national park somewhere. Came out, decided to rebuild his life. Um, got a TAFE certificate and a PhD, wrote a book on sociality, met somebody quite younger than him, formed a relationship, got married, got an order of Australia medal. So there are stories in the background of people doing good things for other people not because they expect something out of it, because they can. And as long as we have those people in the background still chipping away doing things for people, um, yeah, it could be a simple task. There was a homeless chap when I was working at your office where you are, there was a chap, homeless guy, and I used to shout him a coffee a couple of times a week. All he wanted, he wasn't really begging for money, it was just conversation. Just a simple act of shaking his hand after I said, okay, I was going to go to work, you have a good day. You do decent things for people, it gives you hope that um, there is still a lot of good in the world. You don't have to zone in on those uh, stories of things happening overseas, you can zone in on the positive stuff. And when in doubt, grab your dog, go for a walk on the beach. Everything's better on the beach, watching sunrise. I saw a sunrise uh, yesterday morning down the beach. 
nobody else, just myself and Charlie. He didn't enjoy it. He was just running it around. But I just sat there and thought, yeah, the world's a pretty good place. And then you see these stunning sunsets. I've seen people going up there with their cameras or their phones or whatever. Um, same people just taking – because every sunset up there is different. So when you see things like that, you say, well, the sun's going to set. It's going to rise again tomorrow. Another good day. Life's beautiful and it is far. That's a beautiful note to end on, James. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, I'm Freddie from Freddie's Kitchen. Let's get behind Radio Karim. Go Karim.